Gresham College presents Formula One and its Contributions to Healthcare by Professor Martin Elliott. Well, well I hope you're ready because I've got dressed up and, and I'm ready. And, and we're going to start in just a few seconds. So, um, humans have needed speed for a long time thousands of years, we've loved racing, as you can remember from watching Ben-Hur go round and round in circles. And Formula One is really its successor. Um, it's brash. It attracts the beautiful people, the rich people. It takes place in lovely places. But it's got a, a reputation for sexism, for obvious reasons. And its politics are a bit dubious, and so are some of the people it comes into contact with. <laughs> but it makes loads and loads of money. A hundred million people watch each race on the television. And it's incredible that so many people do love motor racing. It's uh, pretty exciting if you're in the audience or if you're near the sound of one of those cars, but for a driver, something else. This is what Jensen Button describes it as. When you're driving 750 horsepower, it's noise and vibrations. When you turn a corner, it feels like your head's being uh, pulled off. 5 or 6G, and when you hit the brakes at 200 miles an hour, and in length not much more than a tennis court, uh, you uh, come to 60 miles an hour, it feels like your skin's being pulled off your body. Now, apart from ripping your head off and taking the skin off your body, what on earth has all of this got to do with medicine? Why have they, racing around, costing lots of money, got anything to do with what we do in intensive care or in a cardiac operating theatre? Well, uh, I'm going to show you some of the domains of overlap that I think are important to us. First, teamwork. Secondly, safety, big data, rapid prototyping, and logistics. And I want to start by explaining how my hospital, Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital, got involved in this, and it's a story about teamwork. And it starts... Uh, some of you may remember who've come to my earlier talks about Bristol. When these three uh, gentlemen were struck off the medical register and there was the Bristol Inquiry, and Ian Kennedy in his report um, of the Bristol Inquiry highlighted that in Bristol, the transfer from the operating room to the intensive care unit was one of the most dangerous and difficult stages in the care of a child, which superficially seems rather astonishing. And it wasn't just Bristol. My predecessor, Mark de Laval, at Great Ormond Street, who was very interested in safety and human factors in surgery, working uh, with the lovely Jane Carthy, they did a great study where they went to look at every arterial switch operation that was done on a neonate in the country over a two-year period and found that in every unit, just, not just in Bristol, this journey from the operating room to the intensive care unit was also fraught with danger. Now, if one team transfers information to another team, it's crucial that the information is handed over well and that the language used is appropriate. Uh, and when it goes wrong or the communication is bad, uh, mistakes happen. Das hier ist mein Sektor. Das hier ist das wichtigste Gerät des Küstenwächter. Das Gerät und das Gerät. Überlebensradar. Mm. 
Can you hear us? Can you over? We are sinking. We are sinking. Hello? This is the German Coast Guard. We are sinking. We're sinking. What are you thinking about? A, a simple linguistic error can change and lose lives. When we operate on a child, we have to get that child ready for the surgery beginning in the anaesthetic room and prepare it in such, in such a way that it's safe throughout the whole process. So I'm going to take you, or take you with this child on a little journey uh, to make that clear. When we start in the anaesthetic room, we have to put monitoring on the baby to measure a variety of parameters, from oxygen saturation over here to giving fluids and drugs, intubate the baby, measure arterial pressure, putting a little line directly into the radial artery, fix the breathing tube, the endotracheal tube, and a nasogastric tube, cover the eyes, keep the baby warm on a warming blanket. All of this taking place in the anaesthetic room. We also need to measure the pressure inside the veins in the body to know how the hemodynamics are working. And this is done, as you can see, with an ultrasound probe. And this allows us to position that um, a needle accurately in the vein these days. You can see it just coming in here in a moment. Once all of these things are in place, you end up looking on a screen where you can see ECG, pulse rate, blood pressure, CO2, oxygen saturation, and a whole variety of measures which tell us how that baby is. And then the baby is almost ready to go into the operating room, where here the heart-lung technician is working with this maze of tubes and these difficult pumps um, to get ready to do the operation. A team of up to 25 people is involved in the operating room looking after these babies, and when the, the child is brought in, into that room, it's a calm atmosphere, um, but a hell of a lot of equipment. And the baby is gradually prepared and covered up and connected to all of this machinery. And after a very short time, all you can see of the baby, if you're the surgeon, is this little area of the incision, and the anaesthetist, surprisingly perhaps, has even less of the baby to see. As this blood-brain barrier between the blood of the surgeon and the brain of the anaesthetist appears, the baby's hidden away in this cone of paper. And all you have is to ventilate it through these tubes, deliver drugs through these pumps, and measure all the pressures through these particular lines going into the baby. It is being driven by wire, remotely, by the anaesthetist and all of these instruments. You don't touch it very much. We can, though, see quite a lot about what's going on with the baby while it's in there. And nowadays, we use a transesophageal probe to make an ultrasound picture of the heart during the operation, which we can see on a screen. And we can work out whether, how the heart is at the beginning and whether we've fixed it properly at the end. What's amazing to me, even when I see it and walk around the operating theatre, as I do now in just this rather speeded-up film, uh, when you walk around, you see so much equipment, so many wires, so many people, so many things to go wrong, so many potential for error. It's astonishing that we ever get it right. Just look at all of that. And once again, as you pass the anaesthetist, you see how little of the baby they can really see. And the perfusionist is managing the heart-lung machine, also remotely by television screens. Now, at the same time, we're operating. So as a surgeon, 
here doing, um, moving the coronary arteries of a newborn baby, which are just a millimeter across. When you do an operation like that, you have to learn how that baby behaves. You give the baby drugs, you give it fluids during the operation, you know how it, that individual child, responds. The whole team is learning that as well. So the anaesthetist, um, the surgeon, the perfusionist, the nurses start to understand how that baby works. And it takes several hours to do one of these operations, so you're learning as you go. And at the end of that time, you have to then disconnect this baby from this highly safe, very structured environment of good monitoring, drugs being delivered by AC current and devices, um, ventilated through a machine. You have to disconnect all that and transfer the baby to a trolley to move it to another area. And each of these syringe pumps has to be transferred manually. The potential for tangling up the leads is huge. Uh, and the baby cart that comes in to collect it is not so stable, not so warm, not so comfortable. And the anaesthetist has to ventilate by hand and not by machine. This team on the left, finishing the operation, is tired, may want to go home. This team on the right, about to receive the patient in the intensive care unit, may be looking forward to a night with a very sick baby. Two teams who need to know everything about that poor little child in the middle. And when you think about that massive amount of technology and plumbing, massive amount of information that needs to be transferred, and the plan that needs to be made for that baby for the night, it's not really surprising that the journey from the operating room to the intensive care unit is fraught with risk. One night, I'd been um, doing a, a heart transplant from the next morning, an arterial switch like you'd just seen, and we saw this on the television, which was a pit stop in a Formula One race. And they managed to refuel that car, put all the tires on, transfer all the relevant information in 6.8 seconds. And we thought, if they can do it, why can't we? It's fundamentally not very different. Software and hardware exchange of information and fixed tasks. To give you another idea of why we thought that, here's a, a pit stop from the top, and here's a baby being transferred from the top. It's not fundamentally different. A lot of valuable stuff in the middle, in the form of a car or a baby, being attended to by lots of people who care about it. My colleague, um, Alan Goldman, is fearless. And we also had the, uh, the great privilege of working with Sid Watkins' son in our intensive care unit at this time. And uh, Sid was the medical um, lead for Formula One. And he put us in touch with McLaren. And Dave, whose nickname was Fon, presumably from the Express, um, came to Great Ormond Street um, and talked to us about pit stops and started to teach us about why they were good at it. And their solution to our problem initially was to engineer it out, to, to suggest in a typical engineering way that we could build an operating table which was the same as a trolley, which was the same as an intensive care bed, so all the components were in one unit. And that seemed like a good idea, but no manufacturer would make it because no hospital would replace all their kit at the same time. And so we couldn't take that further forward, but what we did instead was to, um, through 
being on a variety of management courses actually with, with Shell and others, um, Shell introduced us to Ferrari. And Ferrari introduced us to Ross Braun, who was then the team principal. And Ross Braun recognized how um, difficult our problems were and thought that Formula One had quite a lot to offer in improving the way in which we worked. And we were able then to get a grant from the National Health Service and from the Institute of Child Health um, to hire Ken Catchpole, who's a human factors researcher. And Ken and the rest of our team were invited to Maranello by Ferrari to learn how to do a pit stop and for us to teach them how to transfer a baby and see whether we could learn from each other. Running the pit team at the time was Nigel Stepney, um, who sadly died last year. And um, Nigel was pretty caustic about the way we worked. We were clumsy and informal, and he couldn't work out who was in charge. That's pretty damning. And so uh, we spent a lot of time working with them around round tables so that there was no authority gradient to map out uh, our process, to uh, imagine what we could do better, to plan with Formula One how to do it better, and then mentally rehearse what we'd, we'd written up. The problem was that our process map ended up being 10 times more complicated than they were using for a Formula One pit stop, and it wasn't an easy process. So I thought it would be instructive to go through all of the steps that work in a pit stop and compare those with how ours was at the time, our handover was at the time, and what we learned. Firstly, leadership. Nigel had pointed out that we didn't have any leadership. In a Formula One pit stop, this person is called the lollipop man and is in charge of when the car comes in and out. They only let the car leave when they're happy that all the tires are on properly. Um, nowadays, it's done more electronically and with tighter radio communication, but it's fundamentally the same process. We had a process which wasn't clear who was in charge, and we had to improve it by formalizing the transfer between the anaesthetist, bringing the patient from the operating room, to the intensivist who was receiving it. In a Formula 1 pit stop, all the tasks are done in a very precise order and with a clear rhythm which, when you, as you watch it a couple of times, you can see and feel that rhythm happening. Um, we were typically medical, inconsistent and non-sequential. We all just turned up and did the right thing as we thought. And we had to transfer that in a very disciplined way to making it much more organized. Transferring the equipment, connecting the equipment, all those drugs and pipes that you saw earlier, and the technology up, before we transferred the information about the baby and before we agreed and discussed a plan. Informally, in the Formula One pit stop, everybody knew exactly what they were doing. They had very precise rules. Ours, again, were somewhat erratic and informal. Everybody did what they thought they could do to help. Doctors and nurses are trained to help. We tend to rush to a problem and try and solve it, rather than just doing our little task and stepping out of the way but we had to change and just do what we were supposed to do and then step back. One of the biggest learning exercises was trying to work out what we should do first and what we should invest in. And Formula One spent a lot of time working out how to spend their millions, which of course are never enough, but they're still more than we have, 
but they use a system called failure modes and effectiveness analysis, which says how uh, severe is something. So if you forget to put the wheel on, is that a bad thing? How bad is it? How likely is it to occur? What's my chances of detecting it? And then from that, you can get a risk priority number. So if it's a very serious thing, the driver might die, that's 10. If it's likely to occur, that's 10. And if you can't detect it, that's 10. So you end up with an RPN of 1,000, and that's what you should invest in first. We had no risk assessment, really. We just sort of vaguely thought that some things weren't perfect and we could improve them. But by applying these methods with Ferrari's help, we were able to generate a 42-page document describing the risks associated with moving a baby from one place to another. And each of those risks could be addressed and changed. Um, it's self-evident when you watch the television how disciplined and composed the teams are when they change um, all the tyres on a car. Um, doctors and nurses notoriously spend their time talking to each other, and many simultaneous conversations occurred during our handover. Now, they're limited and structured. And not only that, but we had to learn from a dancer how and where to stand, because we tended to be in each other's way. So just by choreographing our movements, we behaved more effectively as a team. Amazingly, we had no checklists in, in the mid-noughties, and now we do. This was before Atal Gawande's book that we were introducing these, these checklists at Great Ormond Street. Junior staff um, were a bit frightened of speaking out. In Formula One, they are encouraged to speak out if they see something not work. You'd want to know if the wheel nut wasn't on properly, wouldn't you? Our juniors were pretty frightened of us, I think, and now we've had to actively encourage them to speak up. The most junior person in the team is encouraged each day to speak out if they notice something. We did have briefings at the beginning of the day, and they were okay, and now they're better. Situational awareness is an interesting concept. The lollipop man holding the stick here is not just looking at the pit crew changing the tires, but also at the surrounding environment in the pit lane of the other cars coming and going, is aware of the bigger picture. We had no one watching the bigger picture around this particular child, and that had to be formalized. In a Formula One team, they practice everything over and over and over again until they can get the tire changes down to two seconds or so. Amazing. We had not practiced our um, transfer of patients. We just did it every day. And we did get better at it, but not perfect. But now it's rehearsed and practiced, and for new staff, it's uh, done on their induction. We didn't debrief, as Formula One teams do every day. Um, and now we do. So th there's no rocket science there. There's lots of obvious little steps to generate teamwork. But they were introduced into our practice in a formalized protocol. And when babies then were returned to the intensive care unit, we were able to show a significant reduction in the number of errors, and most importantly of all, a four-time reduction in the number of multiple errors, which become compound. We moved from a poor performance on our error rate to a good one. And equally important, we moved from ineffective to effective teamwork. We were quite proud of this, I must say. But uh, something unusual happened after we'd finished the work. That, um, we found it very difficult to publish it. 
medical journals were really only interested in genes and molecules and new drugs, and they weren't interested in process. Uh, it, we eventually did publish it in the small circulation pediatric anesthesia journal. But Alan Goldman and I had been uh, speaking about this work in the States, and the Wall Street Journal became aware of it, and suddenly from nowhere, and before the medical publication, we had eight and a half million readers, and no academic brownie points, incidentally. Um, but the consequence was that we suddenly found ourselves invited into Fortune 500 company boardrooms, into other hospitals, into all sorts of environments, because at every shift change, at every um, handover in a hospital, risk occurs. And we'd stumbled by watching Formula One on a way in which we could control and mitigate that risk and reduce it and prove that we could reduce it. And this technique is now in widespread use in hospitals and cardiac units throughout the world and in industry at the time of shift change. Now, you can't work with a team so closely for several years without learning from each other, and we've significantly helped them in their childcare. And, and another area where we've been able to, I think, make a really significant contribution is identifying drivers at a much earlier stage than they had been able to do before. <laughs> if I look back on that time about the lessons we learned from Formula One at that stage, there were three huge ones. The first was the importance of rehearsal. The second was the importance of rehearsal, and guess what the third one was? Because in medicine, we tend to learn in retrospect. We do things every day and then discuss what we did. Formula One has carved out time, because the races only happen once a week or once a fortnight, to be able to rehearse the tasks that make a difference to winning and survival. Um, we need to learn and create that time in medicine under the pressures we're under at the moment, that is becoming increasingly hard. But simulation and rehearsal should be an important next step that we can learn from Formula One. Now, the next domain I want to discuss is maybe a little more obvious. It's about safety. When Formula One started at the um, end of the 50s, um, drivers weren't strapped in, and there wasn't, uh, most of the components of the car weren't joined on either. And you could imagine that survival uh, was difficult if you're traveling at 120 miles an hour and fly straight out of the car. Um, nobody had a fireproof suit like this one. Motor racing is fundamentally dangerous. And I think that um, it's really important to realize how much things have gone on. And I wanted to show you uh, a clip from the famous Le Mans race of 1955, which some of you may remember or have seen before, because it was seminal in changing the way um, Formula One and mother motor racing uh, behave. I love these early starts. I sort of miss those. Mercedes were fighting it out with Jaguars, Ferraris with Aston Martins, MGs with TR2s, Fangio and Moss, Hawthorne and Castellotti were just some of the household names at the wheel. And they were giving the quarter of a million people in the stands some high-class entertainment. The race was the fastest ever, faster even than the Grand Prix times of the day, 150 miles an hour, touching 180 on some stretches. 
Then suddenly, disaster. One of the Mercedes had somersaulted a barrier and cut a sway through the crowd at 150 miles an hour. The result, horrific. It took some time for the scale of the disaster to sink in. In the confusion and panic, no one was sure exactly what had happened. In fact, 80 people had died and hundreds more were injured. The Mercedes was made of magnesium alloy, which was itself highly flammable at high temperatures. The effect of that was to make people realize that cars traveling at that speed somehow need not to come into contact with the crowd. Um, we still see that now in rallying from time to time, but Formula One has separated the crowd, separated many of these events um, from the racing itself. It didn't stop fire. These three short clips demonstrate um, some terrible accidents, one for Bandini in Monaco, uh, Williamson, who um, had a terrible crash and had to be uh, an attempted rescue which failed from one of his friends, and Ronnie Peterson, who died at Monza. Fire used to kill drivers, and now it does not, partly because of these suits, partly because the fuel tanks are much safer than they were. And the number of deaths and injuries in Formula One has actually has fallen dramatically. And now um, the number of deaths is very low. There's only been one since 19... 94. The medical facilities in the early days were very poor and haphazard and not consistent. And medicine um, has made a difference to this, uh, to this sport. The last really terrible weekend in Formula One was in Imola in 1994, when Rubens Barrichello flew off the track into railings note but was terribly injured and had to be resuscitated. Ronnie, Roland Ratzenberger died during practice in this accident. And watching on from the pits uh, was Ayrton Senna, who on the Sunday crashed the same place and died. That weekend had a profound effect on Sid Watkins, who I showed you earlier, who's here trying to treat Roland Ratzenberger, who resuscitated Rubens Barrichello and had to be present when Ayrton Senna died. Ayrton was his very good friend. It gave him an even bigger impetus than before to make Formula One safer. And um, now, as I say, with only one death in the last 20 years um, and many less serious injuries, uh, the impact of Sid Watkins can't be underestimated. Sid's a neurosurgeon who was a petrol head and loved motor racing, but he had really good relationships with the drivers and the engineers and suggested many changes to cars which had made them safer. The last accident was Jules Bianchi last year, and um, this truck was inside the safety barriers at a time when the race took place, and he went straight into the back of it. And the next change in Formula One cars may well be uh, covered cockpits to prevent that kind of accident.
Sid Watkins did most of this on his own, but he couldn't have done it without the bit that I want to emphasize, which is that the whole business of Formula One was transformed partly when Sid arrived, but also during that weekend in Imola, where safety became what the organization was about. Safety became the dominant psychological move for the next 20 years. And that is a lesson that Formula One can and has taught medicine, that we need to put safety at the top of our agenda and not take risks. It's still a risky business being a doctor and being a surgeon, and we need very much to learn from this institutional, corporate approach to safety that's been so successful in Formula One. Formula One's still dangerous, of course, and if you look at this clip of um, Mark Webber a couple of years ago colliding with the back of another car at 170 miles an hour and landing on his head, spinning over and then crashing head-on into a barrier, it's really hard to believe that nowadays you can get out of that and, as he was, an hour later have coffee with your team. Quite extraordinary. And they've done that because of this institutional commitment to safety. Very scary. And the advances in safety haven't stopped. These uh, latest things are these tech pro barriers. And just this weekend in Russia, Carlos Sainz crashed headlong over 100 miles an hour into a wall, and Roman Grosjean's car disintegrated as he collided with these two barriers. Both were unhurt. Carlos Sainz raced the next day. That, to me, is a triumph of engineering design and the work with, medic with the medical practice. And it's spun over from our, into our road cars. The old Model T and the new Model T, if you like, the latest Tesla. Each of the things listed on the screen have come through Formula One and motorsport into our daily lives and greatly improved the safety of the way in which we work. This has ended up with safer cars, safer roads, and many less harmful road accidents than there used to be, a progressive decline. But in my business, there... Even that um, change has had some adverse effects on my practice because both fortunately and unfortunately there are less hearts to transplant. I'm glad about the fact that everything's safer, but it's tough on some of our patients that they're not available. So I hope what I wanted to do with that little sequence was to demonstrate how important a commitment to safety is. The next thing I want to talk about is data, because Formula One is data-driven. A Formula One car, in practice, it can be covered in sensors, here measuring airflow, here stress-strain relationships, here a camera looking at the tires, more airflow detectors. In, a, in practice, sorry, uh, um, the car will be bringing in 350 sensors, sending data back to the pits. And in, in a race, about 150 different sensors throughout the car and the engine. Those data go back to the pits where engineers can monitor the performance of the car, the performance of the driver, and decide on tactics and strategy. I don't think... I, ha I had no idea of the scale of this data collection but until I read this. This is um, a two-hour period during last year's American Grand Prix, the amount of data collected by the teams during that two-hour period. And this is this light blue square 
is 235 terabytes, which is the total amount of data in the US Library of Congress. They collected more in two hours in Formula One than that library, and more than the entire internet traffic in 2014. And they're doing it, sending those data back by satellite to their factories, where they can feed it into simulator models and uh, into design models to change the way the car behaves next time around. I have to say that um, this is the simulator at McLaren, and um, just sitting in that simulator facing one of the roads is a truly terrifying experience. But the way those data are used is much more interesting than the data themselves to me. Because this is a kind of monitoring chart, this one from Jensen Button, looking at his pulse rate, 157. Resting pulse rate's probably 45 or 50, because he does triathlons. Looking at tire pressure continuously, tire temperature, and so on. And along with many other channels of data, these can be fed into strategy maps, which the team managers can be used to influence how they make decisions during a race. 150 sensors on the car, physiology coming from the driver, lots of knowledge about the other cars as well. Masses and masses of data. Now, that is the sort of engine map, some of the data coming through. We're looking at speed, uh, g-forces, torsion bar function, and so on. I don't understand any of it, but it looks awfully like what I see in the intensive care unit. Lots of squiggly lines. Uh, and each one of these represents a measured variable. So wouldn't it be nice if we could use the same data collection, data analytics, not to predict when to change the tires on a car or when to bring it into the pits or when to turn up the engine, but to know how we can adjust the therapy for a child to prevent a cardiac arrest and reduce the mortality and morbidity of what we do. And um, this has been recognized by McLaren Applied Technologies. McLaren provide all the electronics of Formula One. And I'm very grateful to um, uh, Ian Rhodes, their CEO, and to Caroline Hargrove and Duncan Bradley, two of the chief engineers, and to Adam Hill, their medical director. They've spun off an interest into healthcare. And I'm not surprised when we look at how that simple question of what, what we can learn from um, the way they collect data in Formula One is applied to medicine. Peter van Manen, who used to work with them, um, said something really perceptive. 80% of what happens in a hospital is completely predictable, but there's 20% that currently isn't. And we need to be able to sort that out to be able to predict it and to somehow make it possible for the staff to work out what to do with that 20% and move it into a more predictable frame. And Peter, working with Heather Duncan and, uh, at Birmingham Children's and David Lowe from Aston University, have set up a project to do exactly this, to collect data from intensive care beds, ambulances, and from ward beds, so that they can apply the same techniques as Formula One um, to these children uh, and see if we can predict some terrible event like this cardiac arrest here and intervene earlier. And the way they do that is to um, use a statistical technique called principal component analysis, where data are uh, plotted against each other. Each line is plotted in a different dimension. And you can see that in this diagram here, where in this particular 
data set where you've got data in three dimensions creates a cloud in one space, which for that baby could be defined as normal. And as individual variables change, they move away from that cloud into a, another environment, another space, uh, where it's clearly abnormal. And that, predicting that movement, which may not be visible on one of the wavy lines, but is on the integrated package, is a really important thing. And it's this predictive technology, predictive analytics, that has great potential for us in intensive care. But you can't just do this, because as, as Peter says, a modern children's hospital is even more complicated than Formula One. And our teams change often daily, so you don't have that same cohesive unit that they do in Formula One. And to be able to innovate and make change quickly enough, the culture must be right. And I asked him what he thought those features of the culture would be to make change well. And these are they, self-criticism, a willingness to learn, and a willingness to change. And he said Heather Duncan has that in spades, and that's my experience of her too. Self-criticism, willingness to learn, and a willingness to change. Um, at Great Ormond Street, we are using a similar technology, but we actually work with a different group. We work with a company called Etiometry, who make a product called T3, which has evolved from uh, NASA, using big data analytics as well, and um, in, a, in a, an attempt to trigger different behaviors from our teams. All of these are in their relatively early stages, but we're already beginning to um, be able much better to predict when things change. The changes will get much faster as we follow this arrow. As our sensors improve, what we can implant on a child, will we be able to study people who aren't necessarily in the ICU but are at home or in a better environment, where we know how we can collect data in a more reliable way, store it, analyze it, and where we still need to add medical insight because the computers don't yet know what we do, and then they can guide strategy. This kind of process allows the computers to talk to each other and use artificial intelligence to learn faster than the humans do. And that um, will clearly come along uh, in a very short time. The data that come from the car aren't just used for strategy. They're also used for design. A modern Formula One car has about 25,000 components. And Every two weeks, each team is building about 5,000 new ones. It's astonishing. Ross Braun once said that Formula One wasn't about a driver's competition, it was one great big engineering competition. And that's quite right. And every week, even though they built all these components, not all of them will make it through to the car, but 5 to 10% of the car will be different from the race before. Must be great if you're the engineer and you see that happen. And the reason they can do that is because of the application of computer-aided design and 3D printing. The data coming back from the car, remember, are being sent straight back to the factory as well as to the pits. And when they get back to the factory, you can modify the design of the component in real time and then print something in three dimensions and add it to the model, the 60% 60, 60 size model which you have to use in a wind tunnel to change the design of the car. And, and, and watch it behave. And in some teams, they have a virtual wind tunnel where they can put virtual designs to see how it behaves. You can even print the trophy. 
or a whole race car. But this technology is appearing now in my daily life. You can print surgical instruments. These, um, uh, from a, a recent American paper, printed in 90 minutes, costing 10% of the cost of the stainless steel ones and purpose designed. This is a simple instrument, of course, but it needn't be. There's a British company currently making 3D printed automatic suture devices whose next step is to miniaturize them so that they can be used endoscopically instead of having to use two instruments to suture something, you just need to use one. And um, both British and American companies are, um, and hospitals too, are designing three-dimensional instruments, 3D printing instruments, which can be used prototypically in the lab and then um, rapidly transferred into real life. At Great Ormond Street, we use them for printing organs, same technology, and for rehearsing procedures. This little girl was holding her trachea, printed here. Um, we were able to rehearse uh, how that procedure is done before doing it in real life to make it safer, quickly. Here's another patient of mine whose trachea we printed in three dimensions in a new material which at 37 degrees centigrade behaves like a human trachea. And that meant that I could rehearse the operation that we intended to do and provide the data set to a colleagues at UCL to print uh, a stent that we could use to hold that um, uh, trachea open. Rapid prototyping, personalized medicine. Using the same data models that come from a Formula One car, we've also been able to use three-dimensional data sets from CT and the mathematics of airflow, flow dynamics, just to use the data to look at the potential airflow through the trachea without having to look down the, the child's throat or give it an anesthetic and non-invasively follow it up using exactly the same mathematics as F1. Um, Alan Goldman and I had the pleasure of, of going to um, meet Frank and Claire Williams to um, discuss a number of things, but um, we, while we were there, we were spent some time talking about how to scan um, the body and they use a light scanner to uh, scan the face so that they can make the helmet fit their drivers very well. And my colleague David Dunaway is using a, an almost identical technology is able to look at facial asymmetry and work out what would need to be replaced to correct it using uh, modeling. And then uh, can 3D print the components of the jaw or the face to um, make them uh, replaceable and correct that abnormality. Technology derived from and developed from Formula One. Now, these kind of technologies uh, that occur with rapid prototyping and rapid development is something that Formula One does really, really well, and universities and hospitals do really, really badly. Hospitals and universities are fundamentally places which prefer to say no than yes. And any of us who've applied for grants over the years know how difficult they can be. Um, this comment on the number of devices that don't make it to uh, the market um, is quite perspicacious, I think, that it is a waste of time and energy and effort. There are many good ideas that never get developed. And we have to learn from Formula One that failure is okay and that we need to be able to do rapid development of project, projects and getting them out there and developed as quickly as we can and get the ideas to the designers 
to the people with the money uh, as quickly as possible. And, and a number of models are beginning to be developed for innovation platforms like this. Some products do get to market, and I just want to show you two brief video clips of, of products which are directly derived from Formula One. Um, I founded a company called Trekinetic. Um, we nowadays manufacture high-technology wheelchairs of a unique design. One of the technical aspects that's fundamental to the chair which came from Formula One is the fact that our, the body of our wheelchair or the seat is a carbon fiber monocoque structure. It's just like a Formula One car, whereas the body is the strength of the chair. Se agradece pues, que todo eso invertido, ¿no? que han invertido pues, todos los equipos de la Fórmula 1 ¿no? en ese I más D, ¿no? pues que se vea de una manera trasladado a, otros, ¿no? a, a otras historias, ¿no? a la vida diaria de cualquier persona. ¿no? What people don't realize is that because the companies and the teams in Formula 1 are under such pressure to make faster cars, they come up with new ideas like carbon fiber, different methods of design. And those things eventually filter down to car manufacturers and product designers who are not this, in This Formula. wheelchair, the monocoque design, is its strength. So it's much, much lighter, much easier to move, needs much less power to drive it. And if you think that there are 75 million people in the world in wheelchairs, technology like this has a real impact on people's lives. And one-tenth of the weight of a normal incubator and has much more space for the power supplies and all the things we need to do, just by using materials and um, monitoring devices which uh, have come from another environment, swapping ideas from one business to another. Uh, my, the final area I want to discuss is logistics. An average Formula One team travels 100,000 miles in a season. They need to book 100, up to 100 hotel rooms per race. They move 100 tons of stuff. They have to mantle and dismantle all their telecoms every time they go there, bring the drivers the fuel and all the other stuff. And it works. It's not a good idea to forget anything. And the race always starts on time. Those of you who've had any contact with hospitals will know that we're not very good at starting our operating lists on time or starting our clinics on time. In fact, doing almost anything on time. And I think that we need to learn from both Formula One and the logistics suppliers they use and re-ask our first question. If they can do it, why can't we? We need to build partnerships with companies and businesses that deliver more effectively than we do if we're going to be good at what we, what we do. Pediatric cardiac surgery, and certainly in my experience, has one big parallel with Formula One, and that is a relentless pursuit of excellence. And I want to explain this in a particular way and talk about minding the performance gap. And I just want to show you a graph just as an example. If this is the national average for performance over a five-year period, doesn't matter what it is you're measuring, say mortality. And that is the national average. That's, that's the blue is the national average, the yellow is my hospital. I could feel quite smug about that. I am better than the national average. That's where most people would like to be. But actually, I feel very upset about that because what I want to know, what really matters, is who's best in class. 
because if those people who are best in class can do it, so can I. And I want to pursue that best in class position to be as good and hopefully better than they are in due course. Being better than average isn't good enough. And to do that, you have to know how everybody else is doing. And of course, in Formula One, you see that every week. We know who's good. We know who's winning. We know who's first. We need to be able to do the same thing in medicine if we're going to get uh, the level of improvement that uh, I would like to do. Ross Braun was a master of marginal gains when in all the team. And he um, specifically said that everybody in my team must be the best at that what they do in Formula One if we're going to win the championship. And he gave people individual objectives each year to try and get them to that position, and they did win. The same techniques were applied by Dave Brailsford with the British cycling team and Matthew Syed in his recent book. Now, of course, not everybody is going to be excellent all the time. Can't be. But each year you can be striving to be the best you can. I feel very proud to have worked at Great Ormond Street where that's been a philosophy, um, that pursuit of excellence. I'm very, very much um, grateful to Formula One for maintaining that tradition. Uh, and it's been a real uh, treat to work with them over the years. I think that it's important to find some phrase which sums this up. And uh, this is Stracker Racing. It doesn't show up very well on the screen. But they have a motto which sums up the difference between what I thought when I went into surgery, that surgeons made save lives. Um, that's not all of it. It's about teamwork and the combined intelligence and this overall commitment to excellence which Formula One personifies and which I believe has characterised uh, our work at Great Ormond Street and many other hospitals over the years. You don't get anywhere if you're not trying to learn from other people. And we have learned so much from Formula One that I'm very grateful to them. That's uh, pretty well the finish for me. I want to thank uh, a lot of people um, especially McLaren, and to Fernando Alonso for lending me his race suit, um, <clears throat> and um, to um, thank McLaren particularly for all the help they've given me over the last few weeks. I look forward to working with them in the future as well as we move out of the hospital and into the community with better um, sensor technology and understanding how the future is. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. For all information, please visit gresham.ac.uk.